Hello and welcome to ID Talk, answers from an infectious disease expert. I'm Dr. Sean Elliott, a pediatric infectious disease specialist with Tucson Medical Center, professor emeritus of pediatrics at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, and long-term contributor to infectious diseases and immunization topics at the Arizona chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. This podcast has been created to answer questions from our chapter's members about the COVID-19 pandemic and everything else infectious disease and infection prevention related. So welcome to all those from Arizona and certainly from those tuning in from outside of Arizona. This is the week of February 19th and we again have some fabulous questions to get into it. And again, this is a brief overview of what's circulating out there. Certainly in Arizona, we continue to see plenty of RSV, Plenty of human metanumavirus, plenty of rhino slash enterovirus, plenty of bronchiolitis, group A strep adenovirus, the whole nine yards. So we are definitely still very active in our respiratory season. And that's actually, I think, important for everybody to know if and or when you're getting questions from your local infection prevention or isolation issues, when do we stop worrying about RSV in terms of isolation practices, masks, et cetera, and so forth? And the answer would be not yet. This week, certainly, we are still very active in RSV. It appears that in some parts of the country, especially on the eastern seaboard, that RSV may have peaked and is starting to decrease. But we also thought that might be happening with influenza. And then there's now, of course, an increase in numbers of cases of influenza A and B on the eastern seaboard as well as all the way across the country. So still very definitely active and that that's not too surprising. In general, in Arizona, our respiratory virus season extends well into March, easily the first couple weeks of March, and we're we're not quite there yet. So anybody who is front lines and seeing these patients in the emergency department, urgent care, or sick visits absolutely can endorse and support what I'm, I'm saying here. So on to the questions. The first, last Friday, the Maricopa County Department of Health identified a confirmed uh, exposure or a confirmed case of measles. Have there been identified cases since then? Not yet in Arizona. Arizona, but certainly uh, if there's one, there are very likely to be more. And the fortunate fact is that measles, as with some other viruses like varicella, uh, is highly transmissible. It's an airborne isolation or an airborne transmission, which means that those fine respiratory droplets suspend in the air for quite some time. And the number of contacts within several rings of exposure to an index case are, are not insignificant. So yes, where there's one case of measles, there will be others. And it's just a matter of waiting for them to incubate and or present to medical attention. We talked about this last time in the podcast, but again, just uh, clinically for those who, who missed last time, measles looks just like this. The classic three C's, cough, coryza, conjunctivitis. Cough is a very noticeable chunky, productive, brassy sounding cough. In pediatrics, we're not familiar with this, but for those who think otherwise, think of the smoker's cough. So very much a prominent cough. The coryza is very prominent, not just watery rhinorrhea, but but really almost mucopurulent. And then the conjunctivitis uh, looks just like adenovirus pink eye. So the entire conjunctiva typically uh, with at least a serous discharge and sometimes also a mucopurulent discharge. Those are the three C's followed, um, of course, there's fever along with that, but the fever in the three C's then is typically followed by the so-called morbilliform rash, which simply means measles-like. Not very helpful to use the name in the description. But what this is, is a sort of fairly erythematous flat macular rash. It's not 
confluent, but it sure looks like it could be. So we're talking a very, very dense distribution of these macules, uh, starting classically on the uh, head, neck, and face, then moving downward. So the so-called cranial to caudal uh, progression. That said, there are many cases where the rash just appears to be everywhere by the time the patient presents to, to attention, rather than the textbook description of, uh, as the rash becomes prominent on the trunk, it starts to clear on the face. That may be so, but you know, in my uh, experience of one uh, in 2008, that child had rash everywhere by the time of presentation. So three C's, fever, rash, uh, which is a flat, uh, densely erythematous macular rash, should absolutely raise clinical suspicion for measles. So we'll isolate. If we're in the outpatient setting, what that isolation means is putting a, a surgical loop mask on the patient and then putting them in a private room. If you happen to have a negative airflow room in your clinical space, fabulous, use that. But the reality is most of us do not. So surgical loop mask on the patient, put them in a private room, and then we need to track down vaccination history, yes, no, maybe, uh, how far out are they, and then one can send serologic testing. I strongly encourage you, though, if you have a suspect case of measles, to contact your local county health department to uh, A, give them a heads up, and B, ask for some guidance in, in uh, coordinating the testing so it can be done in a timely fashion. So yeah, measles, at least a case confirmed in, in Maricopa County, uh, expect there to be more, hopefully not too many more, but from local experiences in 2008, when we had a, a outbreak in Pima County, so Tucson area, there was the initial cluster of cases through the emergency department exposure, and then there were secondary tertiary, and then my patient, a pediatric patient, quaternary cases out two months from the initial index patient. So we still have ways to go to look for those secondary cases. So eyes open and thank you for that question to bring it to everyone's attention. Next question, with the increased number of listeria outbreaks, any tips in diagnosing and treating listeria versus other foodborne illnesses? So in general, and yes, there have been listeria cases typically associated with dairy products, and these, these certainly have occurred countrywide uh, and also in other parts of the world and then transported in. Not a huge number, but certainly enough to come to the attention of epidemiologic uh, specialists. So as a source of food-associated infection, listeria is, is certainly no more severe or all that significantly different from other things, except that there may be more prominent fever and less prominent gastrointestinal things like uh, emesis and, and diarrhea. So I, I think um, if one is looking to differentiate a listeria uh, food-associated infection from, for example, salmonellosis or shigellosis, those two are quite prominent uh, with the diarrhea and certainly the abdominal pain. Listeria will be more of the sort of, mm, is it a viral acute gastroenteritis or is it food associated? Even so, most of those will resolve spontaneously and it's only the patients who are immunocompromised or immunosuppressed that would truly deserve treatment. In that category, however, I would include expectant mothers because they have a transient immunosuppression uh, to avoid rejecting the, the fetus inside. So the mother who develops listeria does deserve treatment and, and it is usually, uh, not usually, it is penicillin or ampicillin susceptible. Therefore, raising that or extending that into pediatric territory, babies born to mothers who have had listeria during pregnancy or right at the time of delivery 
might be considered at risk for neonatal listeriosis. The whole concept, uh, by the way, of uh, continuing to use ampicillin in our treatment of neonates with fevers and suspected sepsis, uh, the ampicillin is not just for group B strep, it's, it's also for listeria. So that patient who comes in, especially in the first, well, week of life for listeria, uh, because it's a perinatal, peripartum exposure, short incubation periods that the infant would develop signs, symptoms of neonatal sepsis, i.e. fevers, fussiness, and perhaps nothing else, that'll be in the first week of life. However, we still, as per protocol, and this is as released by AAP in the last year, the infant up to 21 days of life gets the full evaluation. So CBC, inflammatory markers, blood culture, urinalysis, urine culture, spinal fluid, chest radiograph if there are respiratory symptoms. And what we can expect to see then, if this is listeria, is a monocytic predominance on the white blood cells, both peripheral CBC and potentially on the spinal fluid, if there is a listeria meningitis. The name of listeria, listeria monocytogenes. It's kind of named that for a reason, right? So it typically precipitates a monocyte predominant inflammatory response. So if you get that patient in the first week or several weeks of life with fevers, fussiness, you're suspicious of some sort of sepsis, and your CBC shows a significant percentage of monocytes, and here we're talking, you know, 10, 15% of the, the peripheral white blood cell count, uh, or certainly uh, that percentage or higher on a spinal fluid with pleocytosis, definitely then suspect listeria and ensure that you have the patient on treatment doses of ampicillin. Realistically, if they have a fever in those first couple weeks of life, they're coming to an emergency department and they're likely being admitted for evaluation and treatment, which will include ampicillin anyway. So it's not, I think, that we're at risk of missing listeria in infants. Just we need to be aware of, of how to perhaps you know, expect that it might be there. And if that infant has the monocyte predominance, then to go back to mom and inquire for her own health, what GI illnesses might she have had right around the time of delivery or perhaps in, in the terminal stages uh, of, of her third trimester. So again, thank you for asking that question. Again, just to increase awareness, no significant noted increases in listeria in Arizona, uh, but certainly that is something which is reportable and should be noticed uh, if and or when it occurs uh, in a local county health department or by the Arizona Department of Health Services. All right, on to the next one. As syphilis cases continue to climb and we face a penicillin shortage, is there any official guidance on syphilis treatment or penicillin rationing? Yeah, this is a very hot topic right now. And in case somebody just emerged from sabbatical in a cave in Tibet, yes, we are having a huge issue with syphilis, both primary and secondary syphilis in our people of childbearing age and congenital syphilis in the babies. And in fact, for the last uncountable number of months, Arizona has been number one in the country for congenital syphilis. Yay, Arizona. We actually dropped to number three behind New Mexico and I believe South Dakota, which is not so much an issue of them having a higher prevalence, but just a lower denominator of infants born. So Arizona is still very hot in terms of congenital syphilis. And in the last three weeks, I've had over 25 cases in my practice area alone. That's huge, where normally the number is one to two, and even that is huge. So 
What do we do about that? Well, certainly we, we continue to support our obstetrical colleagues uh, in their screening practices. And, and I think by and large, with some rare exceptions, that's happening when the mothers present to healthcare. The challenge are those mothers who are in, for whatever reason, unable to access healthcare, prenatal care, and may have unrecognized, untreated syphilis and therefore are a risk to baby being born with congenital syphilis. That's the typical presentation of the mother of the baby who is admitted or discovered to have congenital syphilis. That's a very hard target to reach in terms of getting disease recognition and treatment because again, the lack of access to prenatal care means typically barriers of access to other routine health care as well. So in response to that, from the health department perspective, epidemiologically, it is likely that we will see a recommendation very soon that all adults presenting to healthcare, whether it's an emergency department visit or a primary care visit, be screened with a screening test for syphilis. In many institutions, that is the RPR, a non-treponemal antibody test, which can give us a titer. But increasingly, uh, and with support by the CDC as well, there is a rapidly performed treponemal antibody screen test, which can be actually performed as point of care, but certainly can be performed very cheaply and very quickly. So, for example, it could be that an adult patient of either identity and gender presents to the emergency department with something unrelated. We'll say it's a urinary tract infection uh, or perhaps, you know, chest pain. Sending the rapid syphilis screen will get an answer back, a positive or a negative, within certainly the time frame of that patient's urgent or emergency uh, department visit, meaning that they then could be treated. So far, easy peasy, right? But as the questioner points out, the treatment of those patients is challenged by a national, actually international, shortage of long-acting bicillin, the drug used to treat these patients. So what are we to do about that? And this is the next big part of the, of the challenge and the other part of the hot topic. And basically, that there is no magical way to suddenly create a huge new national supply of bicillin. It is not part of the Department of Defense repository like monkeypox vaccine and treatment was. So it is basically a trying to get doses here and there. And we're talking maybe a hospital pharmacy is able to acquire two or three doses in one bid uh, of a long-acting 2.4 million unit bicillin dose, which would be a typical dose for an adult. So we need to prioritize. You're absolutely correct. So in my hospital practice, and, and I suggest that those of you who are related to hospital pharmacies as well consider this, is to focus the use of the long-acting bicillin on expectant or pregnant mothers because they are the ones in whom the evidence is very clear they must be treated with penicillin to treat not only their own primary, secondary, or latent syphilis, but also to protect the baby. And it is usually, not usually, but it is at least a two-dose regimen or a three-dose, depending on where they're at in their, their syphilis staging. Men and other non-pregnant women uh, who have syphilis, there are other options, and, and uses of ceftriaxone have been batted about. The current recommendation, such as it is, is doxycycline, which will treat syphilis. It's just that there's not been clear evidence that doxycycline uh, is safe to use or effective to use in expectant mothers. So we need to consider prioritizing our long-acting bicillin doses for the moms and considering other treatment options for other individuals, uh, and that can include doxycycline.
Hopefully, again with national support, the throughput of bicellular doses will increase, although there's not yet any word on when that might be. And so I, I imagine that we can anticipate further communication from our local county health departments and, and certainly from Arizona Department of Health Services here, and for those of you outside of Arizona, your own state health departments, as to guidance on how to proceed, uh, whom to prioritize, and how also best to screen. So, yikes. This is a scary situation, folks, because um, the only way to reduce the congenital syphilis rates are to treat not just the moms, uh, but all of the participants in creating that baby, which means screening a whole bunch of adults and treating a whole bunch of adults to reduce the load of syphilis out in the community. That can be accomplished, um, but carefully. In terms of the baby, the treatment still has not changed. For those babies uh, who have active syphilis, congenital syphilis, which also includes those babies exposed to mothers with untreated syphilis or under-treated syphilis, meaning perhaps they started the treatment regimen but failed to complete it within, or before, I'm sorry, 30 days before delivery, those are all mothers in whom the babies need to be evaluated for syphilis, meaning long bone x-rays, liver testing, CBC diff, spinal fluid for VDRL, and potentially consideration of an eye exam if they have active signs of syphilis. So the babies all deserve full evaluation and then treatment with at least 10 days of penicillin. Fortunately, though, this is aqueous or intravenous penicillin G, of which uh, there is not yet a significant national shortage. So we can treat the babies successfully. The challenge is the injected or intramuscular or long-acting bicillin doses for everybody else. So consider prioritization as, as just discussed. Keep those eyes open. Absolutely continue to support screening practices for everybody, and especially for our mothers, and especially those mothers uh, who have delayed or no access to prenatal care. Woof. All right, man, thank you for bringing up that topic too. Again, these are all really, really pertinent and important. Um, last question then, uh, now actually getting to COVID. Hey, subject of this podcast. Um, CDC announced they are changing COVID guidance to reflect new isolation or quarantine practices. And, and basically to paraphrase, people may return to school or work or public arenas, I guess, after known COVID infection, when they are fever-free without antipyretics, and that's that. That's a big change, right? Because currently the recommendation is minimum five days quarantine, and it doesn't matter if they are afebrile throughout. So this is very much the guidance you would expect to see with influenza. And I think that's appropriate because COVID is settling into an annual epidemic um, surge and behaving very much like severe flu. So uh, I do support that. I do recommend that we endorse the CDC's recommendation. Several states, uh, certainly California, have already moved in that direction. So it, it makes sense to be uh, reasonable about the isolation practices. So for that patient who has COVID, they may return to wherever, school, playgroup, well, adults to work, once they're fever-free for at least 24 hours without use of antipyretics. That is a hard and fast recommendation which will be formalized by the CDC perhaps later this week and certainly in the coming weeks. So it is reasonable to proceed with that. Another question which came up from one of my colleagues is, what about that child exposed to COVID at home? So a parent had COVID. Child is completely asymptomatic, no signs of anything, no fever, running around happy, healthy. May that child return to playgroup, kindergarten, school, etc.? Yes, in fact, they do not need to be prevented from going to school so long as they are asymptomatic. Of course, the first sign of symptoms of fever and upper respiratory infection signs, that is a, a child who does need to be isolated at home, 
tested to confirm the COVID, and then once they're through an afebrile for 24 hours, then they can return. So things are changing rapidly, folks, and it's a great subject and topic of questions. Keep those questions coming, um, and thank you as always for listening to ID Talk. Arizona AAP members can submit questions for future episodes to covid at azaap.org. The Arizona AAP would like to acknowledge the generous support of this podcast by the Arizona Department of Health Services through the Title V Maternal and Child Health Services Block Grant Funding. For more information and resources related to COVID-19 in Arizona and other infectious diseases, or to learn how to become a member, please visit us at azaap.org. In the meantime, and as always, thank you again for tuning in. Uh, Hang in there, folks. Yes, respiratory season is definitely still upon us, but there is an end in sight as the spring comes and we hopefully settle down a little bit. And also, and as always, please take care of yourselves and thank all of you for your service. Be well, everyone. Thank you.